Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Sometimes on previous episodes when I've found myself lamenting about how much fraud has changed in the last two decades that I've been in the industry, not just on the fraud tactic side used by criminals, but also very much on the fraud technology side and the processes that we use. I've often could joke that I feel like a fraud historian where I might say, well, back then we only had one fraud prevention tool for e-commerce or that was before EMV. And so this wasn't as important or that wasn't as important, right? Like, for instance, Count Takeover was not as prolific as it is now prior to EMV because obviously credit cards could be used in person so much for stealing, at least in the U.S., but after the conversation that I had today with Laura Mather, I really see her as a true OG in the fraud prevention world. And I think she deserves the title of fraud historian so much more than I do. Or maybe it's the fact that she made the history that is even cooler to me. I really get geeked out in this conversation. And partially it's because I have always looked up to Laura. I didn't know her personally until today. We were introduced by a mutual contact. Actually, the co-founders of Spec introduced me to her as they are the current sponsors of Fraudology, and she is an advisor and a board member of theirs. I've always looked up to her because I knew who she was. I don't think she ever knew who I was, and that's okay and understandable. But actually, the first year that I went to a fraud conference, she was the first year that she announced or she and her team were there giving demos of Silvertail, which was the fraud startup that they created in fraud technology company. Prior to Silvertail, Laura literally founded the trust and safety department at eBay. She tells some wild stories in this episode. It's hard for me to comprehend time before that browsers, like web browsers, didn't have trusted websites where at the time, if anyone put in eBay into a browser, they would get back tons and tons of different fake websites claiming to be eBay because there weren't trusted websites in the browser yet. That was something that Laura flew up to Microsoft and actually advocated for. And she tells that story on this episode. She also talks about why and how hard it was to change a very fundamental part of eBay, but why it was causing so many fraud issues for the company and for their customers. It's just lots of things that we don't have to think about today because they're foundational building blocks to the safety of the internet. That doesn't mean that we don't have other problems, obviously, but it's fascinating to me because even though she really only started in the fraud industry a few years before I did, it feels like she had light years more experience than I did just because of how quickly things have had to change across the internet and across commerce. So after doing all that at eBay, and she'll talk a little bit about this in our conversation in just a minute, but she really realized that eBay had to be the first one to run from the bear, so to speak. They had to you know, 
adapt the fastest to fraud because they were the number one target, especially because back then eBay and PayPal were the same company. So they were both being targeted in so many ways. And back then a lot of it was phishing, but it quickly turned to payment fraud. And they had to learn so many lessons and had to create so many systems from scratch that when she left her time as being the head of trust and safety and policy at the time of eBay, she and her now husband looked to create a solution that would help other companies that were now starting to deal with the same problems that eBay. And they created Silvertail. And Silvertail was one of the really, it was at the forefront of fraud prevention. It allowed you to be able to collect so much data and be able to understand what was going on in fraud. And while it wasn't a real-time system, it was close to real-time. And not every company needed real-time at the time because this is the early, mid-2000s. And then in 2012, Silvertail was purchased by RSA. And it was one of, I think, two of the biggest acquisitions at the time in our industry. The first one was Fraud Sciences. And I believe that was a couple years before Silvertail, but I didn't look that up before hopping on the microphone. But Fraud Sciences was definitely well-known in the fraud industry and people were excited about it. And then it quickly got bought up by PayPal. It didn't even really have time to have customers. Silvertail did have lots of customers. They were private and independent for over four years. And then RSA or EMC, which is owned by RSA, purchased Silvertail. And while the amount wasn't publicly disclosed, there are reports saying that the price tag was between $300 and $400 million, which was just unprecedented then. I mean, especially back then, fraud was not a known industry. It certainly wasn't sexy. And the fact that, you know, any fraud technology would be purchased by a bigger company was very unknown. Now, that feels like commonplace. And there's goods and there's bads to it. And we're very aware of that. And actually, that comes up in this conversation, too. But after Laura sold Silvertail, she then went on to start another startup in the diversity and education space. And she's just, like I said, I feel like she's an OG. She definitely, she's in Silicon Valley, knows a lot of the people who built products and services around the same time. And she now is a board member for a couple of very select technology companies, Spec being one of them, where she gets to help them learn some of the lessons that she learned in building a technology platform. And I think that there's, you know, another reason, I don't know if it's an elephant or not, but one of the other reasons why I kind of geek out over getting to talk to Laura is she's one of the only female founders. She is brilliant and has a PhD in mathematics, but she's one of the only female founders in the fraud technology space that I can think of. If not the only, I mean, I think there's maybe a couple that were co-founders or got brought in within the first round, but not actually the brain behind it. And that really impressive to me. And there certainly aren't very many female board members on fraud technology or on retail or any other companies too. So it's, she's somebody that I really look forward to learning more from. I know you will learn a lot in this episode. Like I said, it's really fascinating to hear how far fraud has come from where it was, but then also how many lessons were learned and how many new technology ideas and concepts were built out of the programs that worked 5, 10, 15 years ago. So with that, we'll let you listen in on this conversation with Laura Mather. I think I've said at least three times that I really enjoyed it because I did. And I will look forward to speaking with you later this week.
I am here with Laura Mather and Laura is, I just want to say her title is a badass in fraud, but she's been in the fraud sphere since the mid 2000s, early mid 2000s. And she's a name that I knew as I was coming up through fraud and really looked up to. And I'm so grateful that I get to speak with her and ask a few questions about really how she's seen fraud change in the last 20 years, but also where it's going now as well. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on Fraudology. I am super thrilled to be here. It's going to be super fun to talk about this. I agree. How often is it that two fraud people, you know, with close to two decades of experience get to nerd out together, but especially two women in fraud that have that much experience. Exactly. So this has been something I've been looking forward to for a while now. So this is great. Me too. And I think the best place, even though I'm familiar with your resume and just some of your big accolades and accomplishments, I'd love for you to share a little bit of how you got started in fraud and what that looked like. And we'll go from there. Awesome. My journey was definitely not super planned out. I didn't have it all. You know, I'm going to end up in fraud. That is not how it happened. I started my career. Right? Yeah, exactly. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe now they can. Let's hope that now they can. But definitely back in 2003, that was not the case. But I started my career at the National Security Agency because they gave me a fellowship when I was in grad school. I didn't even know who they were when they approached me about the fellowship. So that was fortuitous. That was an amazing experience to, I was doing a lot of text mining work at the Mm. National Security Agency, uh, which was super interesting. In 2000, the dot-com boom was happening, actually more like 99, and I was super excited about it, and I was ready to leave the NSA. I ended up going to Britannica.com, which was a subsidiary of Encyclopedia Britannica. I had applied actually at a couple places in Silicon Valley, but those jobs, I ended up not taking them and instead took the job at Britannica. And that was really interesting because I was doing essentially web trends for Britannica. There wasn't really web trends at the time. I would do things like when someone searched on Britney Spears, who was very popular in 2000 and 2001, (laughs) the fact that the only thing Britannica would return was Native American weaponry was actually a problem. And it turned out people wouldn't subscribe to Britannica based on those results. And so it was my job to help them understand, here are queries that are popular, here are what we're returning, and when they don't match, and nobody clicks, right? So it was through rates on Britannica.com. It was fascinating, actually super fun. And then in 2000, early 2003, I started looking for another job. And at that time, eBay was really getting hit with with what we now call phishing. At the time, it didn't have that name. We were were calling it spoofing. But phishing had transitioned. It was mostly on AOL. If everybody remembers AOL Messenger, that was actually where most of phishing was happening. And then the criminals found this website called eBay. And at the time, they owned PayPal. And they could actually make a fair amount of money by taking over accounts on the eBay and PayPal website. And so they were doing these things called phishing now. So the person who became my boss at eBay needed to hire someone who could handle this. And he looked at it and said, I need somebody who has law enforcement experience and online experience. And holy cow, 
I had been yeah. NSA yeah, and both. Britannica.com <laughs> and I had not planned it. <laughs> and that was not at all like my You're looking for a unicorn. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. And they're like <laughs> Bingo, that is you. So they brought me on and it was the best decision of my life. It was the best decision of my life. I came on specifically to fight Fishing, but then ended up owning all of what was called trust and safety policy at the time. We didn't hmm. call it fraud. We were trust and safety income. There was a security group too that did back end stuff, but the trust and safety group owned policy. So hmm. I did things like it was my job to decide that eBay user IDs were no longer going to be email addresses because what was happening on eBay was you could see everybody's user ID. Right. And it was an email address. And when I went and bid on that Rolex and people could see Mather at Gmail, the criminals were like, whoo, I have that, a Rolex that's just yeah. like that. Do you like to buy my Rolex? And they and know that was, you're doing business with eBay so they can exactly. for And they made it look like it. eBay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So hmm. that was one of my big policy changes was wow. I convinced Maynard Webb, who was the COO at the time, that we needed to get rid of email addresses as user IDs. At oh. the time, eBay had 80 million users, which was a lot was at the just, time. Please, well, right? <laughs> please understand that that sounds <laughs> tiny now, but it was a lot at the time. And it, but it sounds like, like quite the, yeah. Yeah, it felt like 80 million oh people were yelling at me. I <laughs> and bet. And I was like oh, wow. the parent of 80 million people. Of, I promise tell them what's best for them. For you. Yeah. <laughs> I promise this is best for you, even though it is so painful. So that was one of my big things. But we did other things like we would put, we actually uh, launched the toolbar that would turn red when you went to a phishing site. And we convinced Microsoft to put that technology into the browser. Hmm. So that was one of our big wow. wins as well was to, we flew up to Seattle, we talked to them, we're like, we don't. At the time, there were lots of toolbars and everybody, like half their browser was toolbars yep. for all the different things, oh, which was yeah. ridiculous. Yes. Remember this? All this, mm -hmm. all the people who are Gen Z are like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Oh, but anyway, gosh, this right? is important. Even but, half millennials. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was a big deal at the time. But we, so we went to Microsoft and we said, you need to just put this in the browser. So it's not a mm -hmm. toolbar and it will protect. We did protect against lots of different companies, different brands, phishing mm -hmm. sites, but that way it was legitimate, right? That if you ha had a Microsoft browser, you would be protected from the sites that were known. Mm. And it was a big deal. And they put it in as soon as Microsoft put it in, Google put it in Chrome. So that was another big win that we had. Mm. So there's these things that now I look back and think those are pretty fundamental. Uh, but yeah. at the time, yeah, but at the time, at the time it probably felt like putting my out headache fires. of the day. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> wow. How do I deal with this? So eBay was where I really learned and I learned all about account takeover and I learned about, all about denial of service and using denial of service to commit fraud and how criminals would use the legitimate functionality of a website to make money. That was their whole premise, mm. you know, and they'll sometimes use different techniques that are not the legitimate functionality, but a lot of right. times they use legitimate functionality to perpetrate their crime. And it was my job to figure that out. And mm. the big learning I had at eBay came when we knew there was a bad thing happening. I don't even remember what it was at the time. And so we would decide on some kind of fix for the website that would prevent this. 
broad. And I would submit a product requirement document and a business requirement document, and it would get prioritized and it would go through the eBay <laughs> bureaucracy. And maybe nine months later, it would pop out and it would be live on the site. And the criminals, here's a hint that I, all the people in fraud know, mm-hmm. the criminals test in production. Like right. they yeah, don't have to they QA don't. their stuff. Oh, I have said that get... so many times. They don't have to yeah. QA. They don't have to ask for a budget. They don't have to ask for prioritization. Oh, exactly. They don't yep. have to compete with the dang marketing dollars. You right. Know, yeah. so... And they're not going to wait those nine months no. until you guys put it no. in. They're going to keep no. exponentially doubling down. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that was such a frustration of mine of when we would, I think we launched and I think it took the criminals like a day and a half. But I talked to somebody, he was, I'm not going to say which company, but it's a, an old brand that hosted a lot of email addresses. Mm. And he told me a story where they had done something similar. It was like seven month project and they launched it and it took the criminals a half a second because they had anticipated the change. And when it, seven months in half a second was just gone. And this is what we're dealing with in fraud. And that was both frustrating, but also energizing in a way of we need a better way to go address this. And at the time I was working with Mike Einan and he's my husband now, but we both were seeing these things. He worked for me at eBay. We didn't start dating until we left, but until I left. No, not at all. But he he started on the developer side. So he really knew how to code where you like touch the metal. And then he had transitioned over to my team to work on the policy side. And then when I left, he transitioned over to PayPal. So he got even more immersed in the payments, which I had always protected PayPal on the policy side, but not so much on the payment side. So he got really immersed in that. And when we're dating, we're talking about these dang criminals. You know, and they have all these advantages. And oh, yeah. how do you how do you combat these advantages they have? And So we sat down and we said, if we had the ability to build whatever we could, whatever we wanted, and we didn't have to compete with marketing dollars and we didn't have to get it prioritized, what would we build? Hmm. And that's how we came up with Silvertail Systems. And it was this super interesting moment in my life because eBay was getting hammered. There was at one point that the anti-phishing working group did a, they always were doing studies of what percent of the phishing emails targeted various brands. And I think it was mid 2002, 85% of phishing emails were targeting either eBay or PayPal. It was bad. I remember. So 85% of the criminals were coming after me in 2002. And, but when I left, I wondered, are the criminals actually going to go after any of these other brands? What, is anybody going to care? And, mm-hmm. and we didn't know. This was 2006. So I left eBay in mid-2006. For a year, I went and worked at Mark Monitor, where we were, again, working on anti-phishing initiatives and technology. And it started to become clear that it's very much the story we always tell of if you're in the woods and there's a bear chasing you, you actually don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your friend. And eBay, it turned out, was faster than lots of their friends because we had gotten hit so early. Right. Yes. yes, Yeah. That's why we Mm. had to. I was really lucky to be there and then really lucky to understand the real problems with doing the combat in the way we were doing the combat, which was figure out a product fix, 
get it prioritized, get it built, get it released. Hmm. That just wasn't, and not even a f- product fix. Sometimes that nine month cycle was just to get the data to figure out what the heck the bad guys oh. were doing. You knew that there was some kind of problem. And I was, one of my things at eBay, this was what we did a lot of is we would call, we called them members, not users, but we would call members who had been defrauded. Yeah. We would say, talk me through it because I don't know what happened. Yeah. You just sent me this email that you sent $2,000 via Western Union. Right. I don't know what prompted you it's to not do my that. network. Right. No, How did they I don't out? know. Right. Yes. How did they get to you? I can't see. What did they claim? What did they? Yeah. Exactly. Because eBay had a messaging system, but we weren't tracking what was going through it. We weren't, there was all these things where we could maybe see an IP address and maybe see a login, but we didn't know exactly Mm. what they were doing. So I had to do all these kind of deep dives. And it's really excruciating to call someone who's just sent $2,000. At the time, $2,000 was a ton of money, right? Yeah. And it's gone and you have to tell them, I'm not going to be able to help you. But I would love you to tell me what's going on. Luckily, most people, they want to protect the next person. I was just going to say that. I think some of them just want to get it out, right? And talk they about do. it. They I do think want to yeah. vent and they want to be heard. Yes. Nobody's hearing yeah, exactly them. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. They call the police. The police don't understand or the internet. Or they call eBay. Or and eBay. Like, right. And the, the customer service. Outside our protection right. system. Yeah. So, yeah. So they really felt kind of abandoned. Mm hmm. And so I would say 92% of the time they're thrilled to talk to us, but it's Hmm. still heartbreaking, right? Because you can't fix it. And I know a lot of people on the banking system are still having those issues today. When it's paid for on a credit card and it's card not present, then it's the merchant who's paying paying them back, right? There's an overseeing entity. But right now with Zelle and other other victim, not the first time we have finished each other's sentences just even before recording, but Zelle and other victim assisted push payments and all of that, it's almost exactly the same problem where they're happening outside of the network. And it is technically the consumer, the account holder that is pushing the money through but under false pretenses. And of course, they just want their money back. There's no over yet overarching government regulation or entity like Visa MasterCard had done for better and for worse on the payment side saying, hey, when this happens, automatic liability goes this way. And so now automatically the liability goes to the victim. And sometimes if the bank has a good relationship with the victim, and oftentimes that means the victim has had a lot of money in there, which then means the people who don't, are out yeah. of luck. Yeah, right. That's exactly, and still, two two decades later, still an issue. Just exactly. in a different part, right? It's like we always, another thing that we always say in fraud is like in a balloon, right? If you're to squeeze a balloon, the air is just going to go somewhere else. Well, it went from yep. online in that sense when they were able to, because part of the reason why I know that eBay pushed PayPal so much and into a a payment method and not just their own payment method as it was back then is so that it did have more rules around it and control and visibility. Right. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Controls and visibility, because if it was through Western Union or something else, it's the same reason why several other marketplaces that I know and I got to work with at least one of the big ones back in 2010, when they were using PayPal from their buyers to sellers, and they were saying, we have no visibility 
because eBay isn't going to give it to us. We are a competitor in the marketplace. So now we need to build our own and essentially become a payback before there was a payback. And I got to do the thought exercise around what would that because you're not just educating one side of the marketplace, you're educating both sides and trying to put those controls in place when you don't have the products. And but similar, right? It's where you need to have the controls and visibility. Otherwise, there's so many other reasons too, right? Obviously, you can uh, up the rates a little bit and the fees if you're processing the payments. You also know how much money those people are making off of your marketplace so that you can charge them appropriately and not just take their word for it. There's other reasons. It's not just fraud. If it was just fraud, to your point earlier, we'd be still waiting 15 years later. But because there is a benefit of all those things to fraud, it makes it beneficial and helpful to us. And that's what we choose to look at. Exactly. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. And so Silvertail was born from that, right? Ooh. To create this visibility. Yeah. So that whether you are an e-commerce site or a bank or whoever you are, you can actually see how your site is getting used. The goal mm. was how is it getting used by criminals? But it turns out the marketing team's pretty happy to see how that was getting used as well. And so we started Silvertail in... 2008 and ran around and did the whole VC fundraise nightmare. I do not Mm. recommend it for anyone who wants to maintain sanity. We were able to, it took us, we, our first VC pitch, we got a term sheet from, which is unheard of, but it was actually kind of bad because Mm -hmm. it, it made us a little bit complacent maybe that this is easy and it wasn't. And That VC, as most do, insisted that we do something called syndicate, which just means you need to find another VC that is also going to come in because the VCs want to feel like 
more than just me agrees this is going to be amazing. Yes. So we ran around and I think I pitched something like 37 other VCs before we were able to find enough to syndicate our round. This will maybe relate to some people in the last week or so. We closed our (laughs) Series A on September 28th of 2008, which was the day that Washington Mutual was seized by the government. And I just happened to know that because our money was coming from Washington Mutual. And our law firm was funded by Lehman Brothers. I go to the law firm to sign the papers. We sign the papers. And my lawyer walks me out and says two things. One, the money may not flow for a little Mm. while. So you have to be patient. And two, don't freak out. But our law firm no longer exists because we're funded by Lehman Brothers. So it's no problem, though. You have a company and we're going to be fine. And he is still a good friend of mine today. He was my lawyer for my second company as well. So we have stood the test of time. But talk about just getting through with the skin of your teeth, right? Like just before the doors closed on all the funding for everything. I, I very much remember that date, but that's because. I lived in Seattle and I worked right next to the Washington Mutual building, like took the bus with everybody from Washington Mutual down to work and had the same Starbucks and, you know, went to the same Starbucks and all of that. And our um, my daughter was in preschool with a lot of Washington Mutual employees, kids, because Seattle was where the headquarters was just. Yeah, I don't know what that means with me having some kind of ancillary ties to both Washington Mutual and SVB from my work life back then. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I'm the bad luck. Amazing, right? Yeah. But it's amazing that you were able to get that finalized just in time, right? Because you could play the what if game. Oh, gosh. It had taken two more weeks to sign the paperwork or have the money transfer or anything else. You may not have had a company. And as someone who was managing their own fraud department at that time, I was familiar with Silvertail, I think, because the first conference that I attended was in the spring of 2009. And I know there were very few solution providers in the space. I can think of one or two at the time. And the next big one didn't really get going until 2010 or 11. And it was a big deal. And it was a very big deal that One of the co-founders was a female. I don't even know if there's another fraud technology company. There may be in cybersecurity, but in fraud technology. There's a few in cybersecurity. I can't think of any others that, I mean, I know I I had high aspirations to found one about eight or nine years ago and chose the wrong co-founder and the wrong, all the things. And it was for the better that it ended before it started really. But I just, it's a big deal still, right? It's 15 years later and it's still a big deal. Yeah, which is sad, right? I, it's, we need more of that perspective. Mm -hmm. Probably won't get into this a lot, but my second company was in the diversity space. And Mm. the thing I really learned in that company was just the shift of perspective can Mm. change Mm -hmm. the outcome so much. And I do worry that in fraud, fraud, it's not, in my opinion, it's not much, it's not as much kind of the typical Silicon Valley bro culture, but it right. is a little bit the kind of arrogance. I know everything. And here's the thing. When you're looking at the fraud technology vendor space, yes, there's uh, obviously and, a very big difference between yeah. the vendor space and the merchant space. But yeah, and I'm always saying that in such an emerging industry, we need different perspectives. It's not just about it's not about 
quotas. It's not about that. It's about having different perspectives because I have seen the same problem solved the same way too many times. And yes. bad guys do too. And actually, yes. I would and they say- they love that. I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's one advantage we have on this side is I've seen, I was telling you before we started recording, I've seen this industry go from, I think the the first conference, I'm sure people who have listened to this podcast over and over are probably saying it with me because I think I, I feel like I say it a lot, but the first conference I attended in 2009, there were 250 attendees total and less than 20 women. And this last one was the same conference just many years later, 2000 attend around right around 2000 attendees. And it was about 30, 35 percent women, which I mean, way is better. It, right. And I'll just say, but the not cyber crime side doesn't. Well, we need to keep going for sure. Yeah, yeah. But the cyber crime doesn't have that much diversity in thought. So there's yeah. that. And I definitely see the just some of the advantages. Right. And it doesn't it's not just in gender. It's also in. Diversity yeah. in geography, diversity in culture, yeah. in the way that you think yeah. about things, in the way you were educated, diversity yeah. in so many different ways. Yeah. And that's I'm what's going to help you think of yes. the new solution. And I just, I worry that the attacks are so diverse mm-hmm. and they're changing all the time as far as, you know, if you look at our industry, because there's so much innovation, whether it's all the events being booked online and the way you can defraud people through that, whether it's through Zelle type things, whether it's through the refund fraud, whether there and every day there's some new way, there really is some new way mm-hmm. to defraud either a company or an end user or whatever. And if all we do is try and apply the same techniques, we are going to, we are failing. We just are. And we're going to continue to fail. And the more that we come up with something innovative and trick the criminals or obfuscate what we're doing or whatever, that step ahead. Looking one step below, right? It may not have anything to do with this, but oh. Or new ways to address it. Yeah. Once you find it, maybe there's some way you can sandbox it or something. I don't know. I'm not going to think of it because I've been in this space for 20 years and that's ridiculous. And I, you know, I'm running around with my hammer and everything looks like a nail. And I know that's not good. But the more we can get this diversity, Mm -hmm. the better. I'm with you. Yeah. And I would say that refund fraud is such a good example of that because for the first year or even two years that it was a problem for retailers, the solution providers that were out there were trying to solve it in the same way that they solved for payment fraud. And I don't fault them for that. They're going to look exactly right. It's just like if you're a hammer, you look everything like a nail, just like you said. And they tried that. But the thing is, it's so easy to just open a new account. So they were looking at it where, okay, we'll look at the one account's history. Yet that's not what the bad guys are going to do. And so as I was studying, you know, telegram groups and all that the bad guys were doing, I was like, wait, there's no way. I have thought of every single way. There's no way to find it there. But there is a way to find it somewhere else down the line. And that's where I've been working on a product that will be announced hopefully fairly soon in conjunction with a company that I think is the right one to partner with. And, you know, I think it's been really exciting to see that, but I couldn't have done that otherwise without knowing which company could build it for me and having the relationships that I do and them saying, hey, we think it's worth it because of the people you know and what people know that will fund it. But on that note, there are so many people, not just women, but probably the majority of them who I know who have incredible ideas and who have implemented them in their own company, but they wouldn't know the first thing about getting funding, nor would they really be able to. Mm -hmm. And 
I have said that venture capital funds have been the best and worst thing that's happened to our industry. I say that often because on the better side, they allow companies to be innovative and be able to sandbox something and test it and make sure it's going to work. Yes, try them and then implement them and then try them again. And they give them a runway so that they can do that for a while. They also put a lot of pressure on them and other things for 10x valuation and other crazy things like that where that's where we get pushy sales. That's where we get. Yes. That's also often where we get marketing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And we also (laughs) get stagnation in the product once the people who were all in on that product at the time are then looking at their own exit. But now they have all these companies that are relying on the product. But when another company acquires it, oftentimes the R&D spend goes down and they just think, okay, we can replicate this a bunch. Well, by that point, oftentimes the criminals have found ways to circumvent it. And so you have to continue to invest in R&D. And like I said, best and worst thing, but I don't know many people, especially at this level, at the enterprise level that could afford to self-fund or not take VC funds. I'm not, I don't necessarily know if there's another pass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there is. Maybe there might be like a holistic brown grassroots, but it would be very specific technology. It wouldn't be able to be machine learning AI based at all. You'd be able to pay for all that. And I mean, the cloud has helped, but it certainly hasn't changed. And even cloud stuff is expensive these days. It's not like you wanted to get five friends together and be like, let's launch this thing. Yeah, it's still going to cost you 20 grand or something. And it's and then just having actually live this nightmare once you launch it you have to provide customer support because by the way financial services xyz is going to call you at two in the morning when the thing does something funky and you don't want it to be you that has to (laughs) you can't do it all right yeah yeah, exactly you need to hire that and you have to hire actual marketing so that you can start paying for your stuff and yes you know that is where the vc money comes in and Maybe the you bring up a really great point of the stagnation, but maybe there is this kind of natural life cycle, right? Maybe there is. And maybe you even look at the really big companies that went public and things like that, and they are stagnating too, I would say. And But that's okay because then you get the new ones that come in and maybe that's a good thing to have happen that kind of there's constantly fresh ideas, kind of the risk is, again, you get the people who say that they do things that they don't really do and you don't want that. Yes. And that definitely we see that right now, obviously, and have seen that. And it's an interesting point where it almost sounds like, I don't know, I it's probably just because I had David Heitman on last week and we were talking about how, you know, the cyber crime side of things is really like an ecosystem underwater. But I was just thinking of like when a sea creature dies and then the shell breaks up into pieces and then it turns into minerals and then that turns into sand and then that feeds it back. I could see that from the fraud prevention side. The two challenges with that one is exactly like you said, because then it often will force, not force, but companies will choose to double down on their product that was really good five or eight years ago and make up things about its performance now to try to match the market. And because the market is unable to test things in a live environment, they're unable to do POCs because it often requires engineering resources and prioritization and and APIs, et cetera, that then it's no longer, even though we try to be so data focused in this industry, you can't be. When both solutions that you're looking at are telling you that they can do the same thing and they're using all the same words, 
even yeah. if I know from seeing 20, 30 companies that have used each product that they are not even close to the same, will have close to the same outcomes. That's what you're being told. They sound the same. Okay, well, it's just going to come down to price or it's just going to come down to, you know, which one I like better or who bought me a better yep. steak dinner. I don't know. Something exactly. very ambiguous. <laughs> it isn't, it has nothing to do with how good the product is. And right. then the other, the other problem with that is though, that you also have a lot of people in the market on the merchant side or the financial institution side, they can't change their systems and their processes that they rely on every few years, right? No. For so many reasons. And yeah. we, I've seen this time, I've seen this movie so many times in the last 10 years. I think we all have, um, I have a very unique perspective on it, right? Because I'm this 10,000 foot view on the enterprise side, but you'll often see the biggest companies leave first and say, okay, yep, clearly they're not doing what we need. Yep. But then there's always some that stay. And I learned a new term two weeks ago at a conference when I heard two salespeople for a solution provider use it. And I texted a friend of mine and said, what does toxic revenue mean? And apparently- I haven't heard that. Oh, really? So apparently no. it is companies, the fact that I- heard this, you know, these two people representing a vendor talking about it when I was just trying to get a hotel key at the front desk. <laughs> yeah. And they clearly didn't know who I was because I turned all the way around to make sure they saw my face. So they knew, hey, if you know who I am, you might want to stop talking like I was trying to stop. But they were, you know, talking about their toxic revenue. And essentially how that was explained to me, that is the revenue that comes from systems that don't function well, but that they also don't have to put any money into because they don't require any additional services, but they don't function well, but that the customers will never go off of because they either don't know any better and they think in a fraud solution perspective, a fraud solution is a fraud solution. So this one that I've Check, had- Check, we're for, done. <laughs> this one I've had for eight years is the same as any new one that's coming out. Or a company that just doesn't prioritize it and just doesn't. So that's yeah. toxic revenue. And the fact that company was calling it that. That's super interesting. But it makes sense, right? That And for and the company, and what it, it does. didn't surprise me. And that's what sucks, right? We are supposed to be the good guys. I'm going to scream it for the rest of my life. But it sucks for that company. I'm guessing that's why the salespeople were blaming really about it. Because mm -hmm. it means that... If everyone suddenly dropped that product, yes. then the company would have to invest in research and have to come up with something that was meeting the new needs. And so maybe that's what is key. And it, it was one of our goals with Silvertail, but I think it goes to where the entire tech ecosystem is going, which mm. is just that data is key. And the yeah. more data you have the more you're going to be able to make better decisions. And when it comes to fraud, that doesn't just mean sign-in data or point-of-sale data or one or five clicks that happen on a site. It mm. actually means seeing the whole flow, which was right. such a key part of Silvertail, was seeing mm. every click on the, on the entire web flow of every user. And I think... Oh. The more that we can do that, the more power we're going to have on detecting these things, on mitigating them, and then even preventing, right? You need to go mm. to all of those components. And so my hope is that if we can do that, it, you don't end up with the toxic revenue. You don't end up with stagnant functionality because what else is there to see other than the whole thing? Right. Well, yeah. And when you see the whole thing, then it also gives every group within your company a single source of truth, which also yes. helps with so many other things. Exactly. And, and so it's just, 
Oh, go ahead. But that is where I think all of tech is going. Like you look mm-hmm. at GPT and you look at how data is the thing that's being sold, right? I mean, that's why the Roombas are now have cameras and they're mapping mm. the floor plans of houses because Amazon wants to know what your dang floor plan is. That's data for them and that's valuable, right? Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. But in fraud, it's not terrifying. Fraud, yep. it is. I need to know exactly what's happening in the entire flow of my user. I'm not even call it customer because the fraud guy isn't a user, but there is anyone a on the site. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of the reasons that I have been so excited about what Spec is doing, right? Because mm-hmm. they are going to expose all of that data and really show exactly what is happening, which should future proof them is the hope, right? Because mm-hmm. as long as you see everything, then you can do anything you want on everything. And it's where Silvertail's real ethos came from, was yeah. we're going to really see the entire flow of all the clicks in a web session. And then Spec is just going beyond that. And as I'm an advisor for Spec, but yes. it's why I, I get it. You get to a lot choose to who you, right. Yeah. That's what I, I do and, too, but in a different way, right. It's, and this is one yeah. I've, I have no problem committing to because, again, it's my ethos that exposing that data and being able to use that data to make really intelligent decisions is exactly what's needed. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, I get to choose which companies are sponsors of the podcast and I get approached by most, if not all of them. I think some of them know better than to even ask me, but other than that... (laughs) It's not just because I really like the founders or anything else. It's because I want to use my knowledge in the space and my whatever influence or, or impact I have in anyone's decision making. Not really. I don't ever want to be the person that says, go use that company and they use it. I never want anyone to do that. And that's that was one of my number one goals as a consultant. That is a whole other long story. But there used to be a consultant that we used to joke all the time. Oh, that company hired that person. Therefore, they're either going to go with this vendor or this vendor. And funny enough, funny side note, I was actually at a dinner with Spec two weeks ago. And there was a company that came up to me and said, hey, you know, so good to see you. He's like, yeah, I used to work with the other consultant from long ago. And I said, oh, so do you guys use this company or that company? And he laughed and then he told me and he goes, why? And I said, oh, (laughs) you didn't know that those are the two companies that pay the biggest referral bonus? He's like, wait, but we paid him. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And that was my number one rule as a consultant. I am not yep. going to ride two horses with one ass, but that's like I mean, for you. a long, yeah. a very long thing. I mean, it took a hell of a lot longer to build the company and the organization. But I know that my if whatever small influence I have in saying, hey, did you guys know that this technology exists? That's where I love getting to geek out and talk with people and where I think a lot of people come to me and say, like, hey, what's new? Or, hey, yeah. we have this problem. How could we solve it in a new way? That's what I want to be able to do. And that's why I get to choose what companies or why it's And you can be open minded and you can yes. be broad. And yes. that's so exciting. And it's liberating. The way to do it. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't surprise me that both of us in our own ways, with our own background, both came to the same conclusion on that. I did want to fill in a couple of gaps in between Silvertail and your time as you're now a board advisor to Spec. You are a board advisor to other a couple of other companies. I know that Silvertail, you were saying that what you did at Silvertail was being able to measure all the clicks and know the entire 
entire life cycle of the journey, the customer journey. But you didn't have obviously the same technology capabilities that exist now. And so I believe that a lot of what Silverdale, Silvertail did in it still had incredible value to so many companies. And obviously RSA saw the value because they purchased it, but it was after the fact. So it wasn't real time then. I mean, it still provided value and it allowed you to understand what was happening. But was it more after the fact or what was different? Yeah, it was a little bit after the fact. It was about an hour delayed. Right. But there were some other big differences. We had to install on-premise. Nobody does. I don't think anybody does things on-premise these days. Oh, there's a couple. There's two. Oh, is there? Mm -hmm. But my point is most of (laughs) the And usually just with the very biggest, biggest, right? Yeah, Yeah, the rest of SAS, right. We had to be on premise. The other Ooh. thing is we never had something that would actually mitigate. We always talked about it and that it's how we right. like sold the VCs on our future. Don't, hopefully the VCs aren't listening anyway. <laughs> it's too late now. I think but, they got um, their money back, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we were always, you have to sell the future, right? And it was yeah, like, we have this thing where we give visibility and then we're going to have this thing where you can actually take action and no one ever would let us get in the stream. Right. But now people do. They let, I'm so thrilled. I'm so thrilled for these vendors and marketplaces and everyone mm-hmm. who are letting people, letting these companies take action. It's where they needed to go. Yeah. And they're there now. And we never got there. That is fantastic. And the other thing is that we couldn't see all the other things that were happening. We could see the mm. clicks that came into the website, but we couldn't see the API calls because there wasn't that many then. There wasn't that oh, many. Oh, right. Yeah. Right? Probably, I don't know how many, but I'm guessing almost if you averaged out every click probably has two API calls that it makes, right? to do something. Yeah. So we didn't see any of that, but those Mm. are critical too. Yeah. So that's what's key now that is so much more powerful. You're right, because you can loop it all together, right? Instead of just having kind of one peak hole, so to speak, or one window. It's just more data. Yes. It's more visibility. That's awesome. Yeah. And like you said before, I think that as fraud fighters, we don't get scared about new data or like all the data because we need as much as we possibly can. As consumers, though, I often find myself frightened when looking at at a new product demo where I'm like, ooh, okay. That especially happened about 10 years ago when I realized, oh, that's why everyone's downloading these free apps because all of that is sold. Okay. Uh, Now, did any of my friends or family care that I was like, hey, you download that app that goes with your fitness tracker and they're going to sell every meal that you put in there? Yes, watch all your workouts, all, all your the yes, GPS yes, of that. Yep. And yes, I can use that for fraud, but mostly marketing is buying yep. that. And they didn't yep. care, right? Because constantly consumers are trading privacy for convenience. But there are so many tangents we can go on. But I had a feeling that this conversation would go so fast. But it's truly fascinating to think about where you started in your career and where we are now. Yeah. That it truly in the grand scheme of things isn't that Oh, it is was, amazing. It, it, it's not that long. In other industries, 20 years, not many things. There hasn't been a lot of innovation. And yeah. here you're talking about there being trusted websites through the browser and how yeah. that wasn't a thing before. And, yeah. you know, how people having, used email addresses. As email addresses. Yes. You know, yes because why wouldn't you? Now. Just that they would publish out to the rest yeah. of the world of Joe Smith at Gmail just bought this. Really? Okay. Right. They have this much money and this is what they care about. And this is yeah. what they use. And yep. 
go after yeah. them. Yeah. And you don't, that old Maya Angelou quote of when you know better, you do better. And if you don't know better, you can't do better. I yep. it's the same kind of thing that we talk about with how you know, my college ID was my social security number. Like it's why yes. I have it memorized because I had to enter it every time I wanted to eat at the cafeteria. It's and amazing. now we think, oh my God, but and same reason why 15 years ago, we weren't that big on password security, but because of ATOs, we yeah. had payment security come in place and it got harder to get the payment data through data breaches. So then now we go for account rich information. And now look at password security and how it's they got it through the viruses. So it doesn't matter if you change it every two weeks. That's not going to matter. They're still going to get it. Yeah, but we have yeah. to learn all this stuff. Really. Yeah. And we're always a couple steps behind. Right. But I yes. think that because there were those building blocks that were created in part by you and your team at eBay and, you know, by everyone else that worked with you and right after you, et cetera, et cetera, we can continue to build on. It almost reminds me, and this is a very oversimplified way, but I talk in analogies a lot where, you know, as kids, you might do like progressive stories. So like the first person tells the first part of a story yeah. and then the second person tells the next one. And the way I see it with Silvertail to then spec is you started the story and you said, this is where I want to go. And then you, like you said, it was that evolution, right? And then now Nate and Patrick are saying, okay, I want to take that very similar blueprint print, but with technology from today and yes. allow people to do it in real time and be able to see the whole thing, all the APIs yep. in and out, in addition yep. to what happens on your site. And get and, them all in one place. Yes. It's so amazing. So amazing. And the amount of things that can be done. I know that the companies that are early adopters are already realizing that. They're like yes. a kid at the Willy Wonka factory where it's, wait, you can do that? Let's do this too. And then that was actually yeah. what I had Nate come on and talk about a couple weeks ago was the fact that because their product is probably one of the only in fraud where every other department wants to get in the room and wants a piece of it. And wants exactly. to be able to use it, he's been able to start noticing, kind of starting to see what different departments care about and how mm -hmm. fraud departments can talk to the business in a way that they can say, hey, what we do it here relevant. Yes. You there. Yes. yes. And get us maybe finally a seat at the table and not just in yes. the broom closet somewhere. <laughs> like we exactly. started. Exactly. No, it's amazing. And I so love what they're doing. And just the fact that the vision is growing, right? And they're just growing it. And that so is fast. what is incredible to me. Yeah. The other crazy thing to me, though, is just like how you started right at the beginning of 2008. They also started not too yeah. far before investors started turning off the water for yeah. so many different. You have an idea? Yes. Sure. Here's a whole bunch of money. How much do you think you're going to make? Okay, here's a whole bunch of money. This is the same kind of thing. And I think I actually, well, it's a whole long tangent that I could get into, but I, mean, I actually sometimes get excited about economic downturns. And people, I talked about this on an episode back in August with a guy named Gil Rosenthal that is just brilliant on the fintech side of things. And yeah, do yeah. you? Of course yeah, you do. Course. PayPal, yeah. yeah. I forgot. I think we know a lot of people in common. I bet we do. Uh, but Gil and I, Gil's been on the podcast several times. We have great conversations. And he and I did an episode on essentially the different couch cushions you can look under when you're in fraud or in underwriting and credit underwriting mm -hmm. and chargebacks and payments to look for to either bring in more money or save money. And sometimes it excites me because you get down to the basics and you get to optimize things and you're not worried about the excess as much as you are impact. Yeah. No, I'm super comfortable in downturns because this is where I grew up as startup, right? Yes. Is that I had the first couple of years were in the recession and 
it makes things easy because someone comes to you and says, hey, can I go to this foo-foo conference? It's only <laughs> sort of tangential to what we're... Nope. Nope. That's right, easy, that's right? True. Yeah, priorities. if you have a lot of money, you're like, well, maybe I should let them go. Nope. And everybody gets laser focused. And yes, I know it sounds weird, but it's my favorite moment to work in because oh my gosh, just, I'm with you. the decisions are so much easier. I Yeah. I mean, I was in this industry at that time too. And it was where yeah. I got to really shine with building out friendly fraud models for chargebacks and going back to root cause analytics and reducing them from the ground up and doing all that stuff. And that's where I got to shine because these crazy things that I knew in my head about the rules and the regulations. And if you know that, if you know them, then you can know how to navigate around them. It suddenly had a lot of value. <laughs> Yeah, and, exactly. But yeah, so that's probably part of it. But also, I started in this industry as a single mom making $11 an hour. So like, I I don't need a lot to survive, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that too. And that does not to say that I'm not incredibly empathetic to the people who have been laid off. But I have also told many of them that this is a time for a new opportunity. And they may not have yes. been enjoying their jobs that much either. And it's a time for, think of all the companies that came out of the 2008-2010 crisis. Exactly. Full new industries with marketplaces and gig economy and sharing economy and all of that. So that's what yes. energizes me. It's not that I'm not trying to belittle anyone else's experience, but I no. think that, again, I think we're talking about the same things, right? It's yeah. necessity is the mother of invention. And sometimes exactly. if you get back to basics, you can really focus and exactly. get some cool shit done. Exactly. And I love that. I really love that. So I think we're in a really exciting and fascinating time. And I, gosh, I would give anything to be able to glimpse five years in the future, but I think it's going to be amazing. Same with you. I think so too. I mean, gosh, I was just thinking about 20 years in the future, right? And you're looking back 20 years and with 20 years more, you'll still be relatively, we both will still be relatively young. And it's exciting to me too. And I hope that just getting to hear how far the fraud industry has come and will help encourage people for how much further it can come. And I think the one other great thing is when the rest of your company is panicking about where's the money coming from, this is a great opportunity for you to say, hey, if we do this, this is how much more we can bring in or we can save. And it does allow you to level up in your career as well as increase your visibility within your company as well. Exactly. So hopefully people can really embrace this as an opportunity, even though it's super challenging. I get that. But I encourage folks to Mm -hmm. do the best to see this as a moment to, like you said, really focus. I'm with you. Well, thanks again, Laura. I had no doubt this conversation was going to be really fun. And thank you again for joining me. And as with all of my guests on Fraudology, I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes in case anyone wants to get in touch with you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.